Hello, hello. Welcome back. Thanks for coming back. Yeah. To this very rough case. Yeah, we had to take a snack break. I'm Savannah. I'm Alicia. And this is Burden of Proof. And this is part two of Anthony Soul, the Cleveland Strangler. All right. All right. Let's if you made it. it through part one and you're ready to hear part two, first a recap. So we left off with where Anthony had just finished his 15 year sentence. Can't talk. <laughs> we left <laughs> off. <laughs> Where Anthony finished his 15-year sentence for, quote, air quotes, attempted rape. Spoiler alert, he raped her. (laughs) Yes. Yes, he did. And so now he's out, and his plan is to go live at his stepmother's house that is located on Imperial Avenue. Um, I'm just bringing that up because that way, as we go through, we'll mention the area and like that street. It's kind of pertinent. But at first, Anthony actually stays with his sister for um, a little bit. When he first is released from jail, his sister, Tressa, who's been mentioned. And then he moves in to the home on Imperial Avenue with his stepmother in july of 2005 so the deal with the house is that it is three stories and each story is a separate apartment so his stepmom lives on the first floor when he first moves in there's a family living on the second floor he moves into the third floor apartment okay okay just to give you an idea so his stepmother actually she owns the house at the time Anthony's father, Thomas, and his stepmother, Sigurna, had moved into the house in the 1990s after inheriting it from Anthony's grandfather. Sigurna then got ownership of the home after Thomas, Anthony's father, died in 2004. Shortly after Anthony's arrival to the house, though, Sigurna ends up in the hospital seriously ill, and then the family occupying the second floor moves out. So it's just Anthony in this three-story, three-separate-apartments house. Lovely. That same summer, Anthony meets Lori Fraser. Lori was addicted to crack cocaine, like so many in in the area, and had left her kids to be raised by her mother. But Anthony starts dating her, and soon after they start dating... Lori moves in with Anthony and is quoted as saying that moving in with him allowed her to stay at home all day and watch TV while Tony went to work. Okay. Yeah. Lovely. At the time, Anthony was working as a machine operator in a factory. Okay. So probably like he probably got paid decently, I would imagine. But, you know, he's not like killing it out there. Just, you know. For two years, they were together, and they seemed like the happy couple. He worked. She stayed home and watched TV. He also funded her addiction. There we go. The relationship takes a turn and starts to decline when Anthony starts using crack cocaine as well. 
Yeah. No, I mean, I can't imagine that both of you doing it is a good idea or one of you doing it at all or doing crack mm. cocaine. Don't do crack cocaine. Yeah. So in 2007, Anthony suddenly has a heart attack, a bad one, and was unable to keep his job. So he starts scrapping yeah. to support her, his and Lori's drug habits. And by the spring of 2007, Lori was in and out of the house. She was sometimes coming and staying with him. Sometimes she'd take off. So kind of during that time, it comes out later, of course, that she did notice at one point that Anthony had some scratches or wounds on him. But he told her that someone tried to mug him and that he was like, I fought him off, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't nobody going to catch Tony. I fought him off, baby. So she, I guess, took him at his word. But she also began to notice odd things around the house. Blood on the floor, a hole in the wall. Anthony was digging in the yard. And she even noticed Uh, a terrible smell in and around the house, like even outside of the house. But Anthony always gave her excuses or explanations. And she's not staying there full time at this point. So she didn't really push the issue. I I mean, I don't have a very strong sense of smell. So I probably am that not will come into play the, in the person <laughs> to say that. But like if you think you smell a dead body, I think you're going to know that it's a dead body. Yeah. One would think. Yeah. And like coupled with the digging. That's uh, why people don't just dig, man. That's really weird. No, and especially where he dug in the yard. Yeah, which we'll kind of, we'll piece that together in a minute. But yeah, it definitely was suspicious. And she should have questioned it further or I don't know. But then again, this is very much one of those cases that people in this neighborhood, people who are addicts, people in this community don't trust the police so they're not going to be quick well, yeah they shouldn't like i'm go, just gonna right. be honest and with I, you yeah and i'm so i just kind of want to like touch on that that like i understand it's easy for us to look at it and go oh my god how did you not but truthfully she very well may have really suspected yeah this is foul true. play but she very likely isn't was like what do I do? Yeah. I can't go to the police. I don't trust them. I could get in trouble because I'm addicted. Like, yeah, you know, enough. et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. She finally leaves Anthony for good about mid-2008 after he became abusive. So, spring of 2007 is the timeline. To give you an idea of the layout of where, which you can probably piece together if you find the right pictures and stuff. Basically, Imperial Avenue, where he lived, he lived near a corner, near a corner, not right at the corner. So the crossroad to Imperial Avenue was like a busier street where there's businesses on. So right next to his home 
is a business. It's Ray's Sausage Company. Right across the street from his home or catty corner from his home is a convenience store. Okay. Okay. So Anthony starts hanging out. He hung out on his porch a lot. He'd hang out at the convenience store a lot. And even when hanging out on his porch, like, he'd talk to a lot of people in the neighborhood because they're coming by to walk to the convenience store and stuff. Well, he starts hanging out more at the convenience store. And he would just start talking to women. And he'd start asking them, like, hey, you want to party? You want to come to my house? Party. I'm right across the street. He very much would take advantage of their addictions. Yeah. To draw them to come hang out. And sometimes they would just hang out with him. And sometimes things go awry. So, in May 2007, he meets Crystal Dozier, a 38-year-old mother of seven. She's described as sweet and loving by her family. Her father died at a young age, and then she was predominantly raised by her mother alone. Crystal was forced into prostitution by a former boyfriend from age 17 until 21. Of course, she ends up getting pregnant, having these kids, and becoming overwhelmed by single parenthood. When a drug drug addiction took over her life, and she eventually lost her kids. So she is one of the women that knew Anthony from the neighborhood or from the convenience store. And he invited her to come get a fix. Later, Crystal's body was found in a shallow pit along the fence of Anthony's backyard that's next to the sausage factory. This shallow pit had been covered with plywood. Okay. Which they later either speculate or he tells them when he talks about things that it was basically to, like, keep animals from digging into said shallow pit. Her body had been bound with coaxial cable. She had been strangled with cloth and covered in trash bags that were secured with duct tape. That's so horrible. So that was in May. Then in June, Crystal's family begins looking for her. Her son filed a missing persons report on June 11, 2007. They posted flyers throughout the area, but the flyers on and around Imperial Avenue kept disappearing. Okay. The signs just, like, weren't there anymore near his street, huh? Yeah. They would go back, like, you know, they live in the area. Yeah, yeah. They began to notice that, oh, gee, that's weird. We put signs up there and now they're gone. Mm, But only on this street. Mm -hmm. Neighbors begin to complain to the health department about a terrible stench filling the area. Oh, no. So the health department sends out inspectors. And first they say... That the smell was probably just a dead animal. Yeah, because that's, I mean, the the first yeah. logical choice. But yeah. also, um, is it an animal or does it smell like a 
body. Because wow. I've heard cops say that there is a difference. Yeah. Well, when the complaints keep rolling in, they come out again. And then they decide that they think it's coming from Ray's sausage company. Not Ray. Yeah, poor Ray. Leave Ray out of it. Poor Ray goes on to spend tens of thousands of dollars to oh, try and fix their sewer pipes. But the smell... Never went away. Because it's not you, Ray. No, it's not you or your sausage. It's your fault, Ray. You're just trying to make sausage. Yeah. So, months go by. In January 2008. Okay. New year. The Adam Walsh Act passes. So, Anthony's status as a sex offender changes. Okay, good. To the highest level, which then required him to report to the sheriff's office every 90 days. Good. And by all accounts, he managed to keep that up. Good, good, good. Six months later, six-ish months later, in summer of 2008, Anthony meets Tashana Culver, a 33-year-old mother of four, last seen in June of 2008. Her family described her as generous and always willing to help others. The family believed she was getting her life together, but she did still drift in and out of her family relationships, so it's possible that she was hiding, that she had slipped up and started using again. She had recently moved into an apartment about a block from Anthony's. Okay. Tashana's body was later found on the third floor of Anthony's house, stuffed into a crawl space. Oh, no. Next, Anthony meets LaShonda Long, 24-year-old mother of three, who was last seen in August of 2008. So, if you look at the timeline, Crystal Dozier Mm -hmm. was attacked in June of 2007. May or June, sorry. May of 2007. Then he goes a year, and there's nobody that we know of. That's true. Nobody that we know of. And now, all of a sudden, Tashana Culver goes missing in June of 2008. And the very next victim is in August of 2008, just two months later. Okay. Where he, they're speeding up. Yep. So, LaShonda Long is described as strong-willed and sassy by her family. Unfortunately, drugs had become central to her life, and she would go missing for days or weeks at a time. Her father assumed she was just on another bender when she went missing until she neglected to call on his birthday, which she always had done, no matter what. You missed that birthday call. Yep. He's going to know. Unfortunately, LaShonda Long's skull was found in a bucket under some stairs in Anthony's basement, but her body was never recovered. The very next month, Anthony meets 34-year-old Vanessa Gay, she enters Anthony's house one night in September 2008 under the pretense that they will smoke crack. Anthony takes the first hit, but instead of handing the pipe to her, he punches her in the face and tells her to take off her clothes. He begins ranting at her about his ex and how women who smoke crack have done him wrong. Well, buddy, that's tough, but don't keep hurting them. Yes. 
Anthony proceeded to beat and rape her until the morning when he walked her to the door, offered his phone number, and told her to come back on Monday when he gets paid so they can do it again. Did he think it was, like, consensual? This is just a fun time? What? He walked her to the door? Yep. I am. I have no words. She managed to walk to a payphone, called the police, and the police told her she would have to come in person to file a report. But, but why? Why can't they come to you? Why can't you send a, an officer who's out and about? Why can't you dispatch them to pick her up and take her to a hospital, hospital where she's- and take the report and get treatment? Oh, she I can, was. You want to know why? <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, secret time. It's because this is a predominantly black neighborhood, filled with drug addicts. Filled with drug addicts. Yes. So they're not going to send cops there. Yeah. Which is wrong. In terrible physical pain, dazed and confused, Vanessa walked to a nearby abandoned drug house that she felt comfortable enough at, and she went up into an area of the house that she was like she had been familiar with and she fell asleep there for days she says the poor thing i feel so bad i just want to give him hugs like i just it's horrible she later testifies at the trial okay and she admits like her addiction spiraled out of control after that like it was already bad it spiraled And it wasn't until she saw the story of Anthony's arrest in the news a year after her attack that she finally told her mother, who encouraged her to come forward and be part of the investigation and the trial. Well, that is amazing. And she, I've seen her profiles on social media. She's done interviews since, like on anniversaries and stuff. And she's now healthy and recovered and... Well, great. Seems to be doing very well. So that's amazing. If there's any light in this case. Yeah. I hate that she had to go through it, though. Yes. Still following his pattern, Anthony next meets Michelle Mason, a 45-year-old mother, just a month later in October of 2008. So he's just moving right along. Going pretty quickly there, Tony. Michelle suffered from not only drug addiction, but from bipolar disorder. Oh, goodness. Her family says that despite that, she had been full of happiness in the last several years. The family was also very frustrated with police's slow response to her case, as well as the lack of media coverage. Well, yeah. Because when the police didn't respond the way that they felt they should to a missing person, they tried going to the media, and they said that at the time of the search for her, many news outlets chose to run stories like, here's how to decorate for Christmas, or here's the Christmas decorations in somebody's yard. Like, look at this special fancy Christmas. And hey, I am all about, like, I love Christmas. I love Christmas decorations. But it's not like they did this Christmas decoration story and said, well, we're going to put that on the front page because that's like more people want to see that. Yeah. But we'll do your story. We're just going to, like, put it in the back. They just straight up refused to run a story about her missing. That's okay. I mean, I don't really know what to say to that at all. Because 
what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of, yeah. So much like Crystal Dozier's family, Michelle's family posted flyers as part of the search, and those flyers would disappear on and around Imperial Avenue. Wow, it's such a weird coincidence. Michelle Mason's body was found buried in Anthony's backyard under only eight inches of dirt with a sock tied around her neck. He's not even digging that deep. No, not at all. They were very shallow. Next, Anthony meets Tanya Carmichael, a 53-year-old mother of three who was last seen on November 10th, 2008. A month or less. Yeah, that's so fast. Her family says she loved life and had worked hard to provide for her children until she became an addict shortly after having her third child. When Tanya didn't come home for three weeks, Barbara Carmichael, Tanya's mother, filed a missing persons report telling police she waited because Tanya, she knew Tanya had a drug problem, so it wasn't unusual for her to be gone for a matter of days. Yeah. But now that she had been gone for a few weeks, she was concerned. Yeah. She claims that police not only dismissed her concerns, but they told her she'll come home when the drugs run out. Well, yeah, that's always what a mother wants to hear. Yeah, that's really kind of them, truly. Tanya Carmichael's body was found wrapped in plastic and buried in Anthony's backyard, having been strangled with a charger cord and her hands were bound or tied. My goodness. Now we're in December of 2008. Okay. When a woman named Gladys... Wade comes across Anthony while walking by his house. Okay. She states that she was attacked by Anthony after he invited her to drink with him at his home, and she did not accept. Sounds about right. He punched her in the face and dragged her into his house, then began choking her and attempted to rip her clothes off. She managed to escape and flagged down a police car nearby. The police went to the house and found her blood right where she told them because she said, like, I was fighting to not get drug into the house. So you're going to find my blood on the doorframe kind of situation. So police do arrest him, but the charges were then dropped as they cited insufficient evidence. Insufficient evidence. That's what I have to say about that. So, just weeks later, Anthony meets 43-year-old Kim Smith, who was last seen on January 17, 2009. Her father says she was his heart. He was very sweet. His victim impact statement. Oh, my gosh. It was heartbreaking. And the rest of her family says that they know she desperately wanted to take care of her father because he was left paralyzed after a surgery. So she went out that night saying she was going to her boyfriend's house. But then when she goes missing, her boyfriend tells everybody she I wasn't home. Yeah. So she never she never came to my house because or if she did, she turned around and left because I wasn't home. So they don't know if she ever arrived, if she got taken before, after, whatever. By all accounts, she is one of the people that there's not really any evidence that she was an addict. 
Like she was taking care of her father. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this may be a situation similar to Gladys Wade where she was just snatched. Yeah. Wrong place, taken. wrong time, yes. unfortunately. But I don't think we, I don't think it, they really know for sure. Yeah. Kim's body was found buried in Anthony's yard, wrapped in plastic with her hands and feet bound in cloth. Oh my gosh, this is horrible. So in the spring of 2009, Amelda, or Amy as she went by, Hunter, a 47-year-old mother of three, went missing after hanging out with Anthony, who she occasionally was known to party with. Her family recalls her being a bookworm. I found that kind of funny because, I mean... Partier. Well, yeah, but I think, like, they're probably recalling, like, pre-drugs. Yeah, true. But it was just interesting to me that that was really the only thing noted. Yeah. Like, I could see saying, well, she was a bookworm, but also, like, she was sweet, she was quiet, she was funny, she was something. Nope, she's just a bookworm. Amy had a difficult time... After getting pregnant at the age of 14 my gosh. by a teacher <gasps> who had given her alcohol, she had the child. On site, I would kill him. Yeah. Um, she ended up having the child, and unfortunately, the child had special needs. So, you know, no 14-year-old is really equipped to be a parent, no, much less. let alone a parent to a special needs kid. After all of that happened, the family moved to Cleveland, and unfortunately, Amy took up with a man who was 17 years older. Hey, babe, what? I mean, what? Yeah. She ended up having two more kids with him, and then she developed a drug problem. And it was typical for her to disappear for days at a time, so her family did not file a missing persons report. I'm sensing a theme. (laughs) Yeah. Amy Hunter's body was found buried in Anthony's backyard with the shoulder strap of a suitcase around her neck. Really interesting that it seems to be that he's just using whatever's nearby. Yep. Which is what he was used, what they used to beat him when he was a kid, whatever was handy. Whatever. Yep. The third victim to survive is Tanya Doss a 43-year-old mother of three and grandmother of two. She actually first met Anthony in 2005, shortly after his release from prison. Okay. They had cut ties for a few years when he told her not to come around anymore because he was with Lori Fraser. Okay. But they recently had reconnected, and Tanya had, even though they were dating, she said... It wasn't exclusive, and so they didn't spend a lot of time in public. She would just yeah. go over to the house yeah. because she was, seen, she was like dating other people and she didn't want to be seen. Fair enough. So on a night in April of 2009, she went over to Anthony's house because he was supposed to be having a party, but no one showed up. Oh. I mean, so, wait, I don't feel bad for him. Well, no one showed up. Yeah, there was a little, um, I think in at least one of the references, it was kind of speculated, like, who's going to show up? Nobody wants to hang out at this house. The house was filthy. Yeah. It was gross. It stunk, stunk like dead bad. people. Yeah, it it was not yeah. good. So do you really want 
that guy barbecuing for no. you. Like <laughs> no. Yeah. Gosh, no. But she stuck around despite nobody showing up. And so they drank, they smoked some crack while they watched the Cavs game. Priorities. Yeah. When all of a sudden he starts talking to her about a gift that he had bought for Lori Fraser for Lori's birthday. Okay. Tanya was confused because she knew they were no longer together. She knew that at this point, I mean, this is like a year after Lori has completely left. Yeah. So she knew that they sometimes like talked, but that they were de- like, Lori is definitely not coming back. <laughs> yeah. Why are you buying her gifts? But she did her best to assure him, like, he shows her the gift. And he's really excited about it. So she's like, okay, I don't know how to respond to this. But she tried to assure him that, no, I'm sure Lori will love it. She's going to love it. (laughs) Well, he must have seen something there that triggered him. Because Anthony suddenly became very aggressive and flipped out. He lunged at her, knocking her to the floor, and began choking her. He told her to knock on the floor three times if she wants to live. Oh, my gosh. So she knocked, and he released pressure, but then he starts screaming that she doesn't know the real him. I don't think I want to. Mm, Yeah. He slapped her several times and told her to remove her clothes. He allowed her to go to the bathroom where she put her clothes back on. He then called for her to come back to the bedroom where he was on the bed naked. Oh, gosh. He said he should have killed her and told her to lay on the bed. So she laid Uh, next to him in, like, a fetal position, and she said he never touched her. He just laid there. Oh, my God. That's terrifying. She finally fell asleep and woke up the next morning to him acting like nothing happened. That's so scary. She took a beer that he offered her in the morning, but then acted as if she got a phone call from her daughter and told him that she needed to go help her with something. Well, yes, kids are good excuses for anything. Yeah. He let her go and even called her later that day asking if everything was okay with her daughter. Well, it's creepy because it's him. Yep. She says she did not report the incident because she had been raped once before and the perpetrator received nothing but a slap on the wrist, so she feared it wouldn't do any good. Fair enough, honey. And we all know the kind of scrutiny. Yeah. That you're under. When questioned about the house, Tanya told detectives that she never really noticed the smell because she has very little sense of smell. (laughs) Hey, I get it because I'm like that. I got nothing going on up in this nose. That's why I said (laughs) that'll actually come into play. This part is one of the craziest parts of this case to me. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Shoot. I'm buckled up. Buckle in. So just days later, after that attack on Tanya Doss, Anthony invites Nancy Cobbs, a 44-year-old mother and grandmother, over. Her family describes her as someone who lived in extremes. She was sometimes a wonderful family woman and sometimes spiraled into addiction. Okay. So here's the crazy part. The crazy thing is that she was friends with Tanya Doss, okay? Okay. And Tanya Doss claims 
that she told Nancy about what happened because she had invited Nancy to the part, what the was supposed party. to be a party, but Nancy ended up not going. So after the fact, she told Nancy all about the attack and the weirdness. And Nancy still goes? Nancy, well, number one, never tells Tanya, oh, I know him too. Tanya didn't even know that Nancy knew Anthony. What? And she goes to his house when he invites her. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. So... On April 24th, 2009, Nancy said she was going to the store, but then never came home. Her daughter filed a missing persons report with the security at their apartment complex and then contacted police, but says that they weren't much help. Well, okay. Yeah. Nancy Cobb's body was found on the third floor crawl space in Anthony's house. She had been bound, strangled with rope and cloth, then wrapped in a comforter and plastic. Okay. He's really just doing what he can, huh? Yes. Less than two months later, in the summer of 2009, Anthony meets Janice Webb, a 48-year-old mother of one who disappeared on June 3rd, 2009. Her family remembers her as the jokester amongst them. Okay. They reported her missing a month later, stating, again, it's not unlike her to disappear. Yeah. They, too, hung flyers around the neighborhood, which would then disappear. Janice Webb's body was found under a mound of dirt in Anthony's basement. She had been strangled with a belt after being bound and gagged with a shirt. Okay, sorry, I had to take a deep breath to get through this. Yeah. And it's picking, he's picking up pace because also in June of 2009, Anthony meets Talatia Fortson, a 31 year old mother of three. Her family says she was adopted and loved dearly, but never overcame her abandonment issues. So she started struggling with drug addiction as a teenager and had unfortunately lost her children due to that. There's not much details about Talatia, which I kind of assume is because she was kind of estranged from her family. Yeah. At that point, her body was found on the third floor of Anthony's home with a cloth ligature still around her neck and a knife near her body. She was just kind of laying on the floor. Okay, a knife is new, but. Yeah, and it wasn't, it was just near her. It was just sitting on the floor next to her. So. He had been picking up speed, and now there's a little lull. In September of 2009, Anthony appeared for his standard check-in at the sheriff's office. Two and a half weeks later, police went to his house to confirm that he lived there as he had reported. They do not enter the home. Later, after ever- But do they not smell the dead body? Multiple? Right. And they exactly. just don't go inside? The public <sighs> questions, the public and journalists and everybody questions why and how it is that Anthony wasn't caught at this point. Because why, how did you not notice anything that would Seriously. like set you off to go, oh no, we need to search this or we need to do something. 
They explained that Anthony had always complied with the sex offender requirements and they saw nothing that that day that would cause warrant to search the premises or even yeah, question him day. further. Okay. Well, they're weird, but... But that same month, Anthony meets Diane Turner, a 38-year-old mother of six who disappeared in September of 2009. Unfortunately, her relationship with her family had been broken, but others who knew her through work and whatnot said she was a good person. Her co-workers are actually the ones that informed the family that she hadn't reported to work for about a week. Her family, though, was slow to report her missing, probably assuming that she was on a drug bender or had just quit her job without notice and they didn't know because she didn't stay in touch with them. Diane Turner's body was found next to Talasia Fortson on the third floor of Anthony's house. For whatever reason, even though she actually was killed after, Diane's remains were so decomposed to the point that it took longer to identify her because her family would not provide a DNA sample. Why? What do you have to lose? They were just slow to do it. And I don't know. Nobody really knows why. Again, that same month, on September 22nd, 2009, the fourth victim to survive was Latundra Billups. Anthony brutally raped and strangled her with an, an extension cord. Atundra lost consciousness but eventually woke up, surprising Anthony, who thought she was dead. He then starts acting like nothing happened again, and he actually offered her a sweater to replace the one he had torn because he had a pile of women's clothes uh, in his house from, you know... Uh, So he gives her a sweater and he allows her to leave, except he made her promise that she wouldn't tell anyone about the incident. Thankfully, LaTundra did not listen to that, (laughs) did not follow through on her promise, I should say. She immediately went to the hospital and reported the attack. The investigation took some time as police claim that LaTundra was difficult to contact and failed to show up to scheduled interviews. But LaTundra claimed that she called several times within days of her attack, but that her calls were not returned. Okay. Here's the thing. Several legal experts have noted that the report taken at the hospital should have been sufficient to get a search warrant. Yeah. But police officials claim they didn't want to risk jeopardizing the investigation by requesting a warrant before having a detailed statement. No. Yeah. While police were taking their time investigating LaTundra Billups' case, Sean Morris, a 51-year-old wife and mother, was attacked by Anthony on October 19, 2009. Sean was out partying with some friends until the early morning hours, and then while waiting for the bus at a stop near Imperial Avenue, she met Anthony. Already nervous about her kids seeing her at the bus stop when they were going to school, she took him up on his offer to come to his house and smoke some crack. And what was her name again? Her name is Sean. Okay. Sean Morris. Okay. Now, everything seemed fine at first. They smoke. They ha- she hangs out a few hours. 
But after she leaves, she realizes she forgot her ID. So she went back. And as soon as she goes back and he opens the door, he suddenly grabs her in a chokehold and dragged her upstairs to a second floor bedroom. I just, uh, for some reason, this case, the fear that they must have felt. Yeah. It's just terrifying. Because it very much sounds like when he's nice, he's nice. Yeah. And honestly, in by all accounts, like neighbors and stuff said that he was like known as being like a nice guy in the neighborhood, yeah. that he would help neighbors, he would do things for them. So it's like a Ugh. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation for sure. So Anthony forces Sean to strip naked and he rapes her. Sean reports that she realized he intended to kill her when he began to go around from room to room closing the windows. Oh, that had to have been so terrifying to realize. Yeah. Once Anthony was out of the room, though, she literally jumped out of the bedroom window closed. Like, I think because she had like cuts, like glass cuts and stuff. She jumped through the bedroom window, landing on the pavement between the house and Ray's Sausage Company. Okay. Ow. Yeah. From a second story. Anthony ran out and attempted to drag her back into the house. But there are, thankfully, that being a busy corner like it is. Yeah, there's people. There were people around and witnesses called 911. Good. Sean spent several days in the hospital with broken bones and a fractured skull. And unfortunately, she initially lied to police, stating she accidentally fell from the window because she was scared to upset her husband. Like she, like they, here's the thing. I, I was trying to compact my whole thing, but like they thought that Anthony was her husband. And she let them believe that at first because she didn't want them to call her husband right away. Her actual husband. She didn't until she was in the hospital so long then eventually, like, you're really beat up. Like, you're not going home today. She didn't want her husband finding out that she had, you know, been out doing drugs with this strange man. And Yeah. So we're finally here. Okay. Finally. I'm I'm so ready for the brutality to stop. Yes. On October 29th, 2009, police were granted search warrants for evidence related to the attack on LaTundra Billups. They, of course, go into the house and they first find the bodies on the third floor. Anthony is not home. He's blocks away at his sister's house playing video games with his nephew. Anthony's neighbor, Debbie Madison, thinks Anthony is one of the bodies being brought out of the house. What? Yeah, she sees the scene. She sees bodies being taken out. And she, oh, I see, I see. She I is see. concerned that, oh my gosh, something happened to Anthony. To Anthony, okay. Because like I said, he's known for being like the nice guy yeah. in the neighborhood. So she goes to his sister's house. To tell his sister. Which sister, Tressa? I believe so, yeah. Him and Tressa seem to be the closest. I think they were closest in age and closest like from the time he got out of military and jail and all that. To Debbie's surprise, Anthony is there. 
Oh my gosh. But, and then she thinks, she says, oh. Then she's like, oh, oh God. There are bodies being taken out of your, but yeah. you're here. Oh, that oh. means that you, oh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, oh God. So she manages to keep it together and tells him, like, you need to go home because. They're like taking bodies out of your house. Like they found these bodies. You need to go home. And so he asks her for a ride. Um, it's gonna be a no from me. She she's terrified. She's about to get in the car with a killer. So she turns to Anthony's nephew and is like, "You should come with us too." Yeah, hoping like okay, smart, smart. He won't kill you. (laughs) He's not likely to kill me in front of you. You know, the nephew actually reported after the fact that he noticed he noticed that Debbie was like choking back tears or like crying as she got into the car because Anthony wouldn't let his nephew go. He's like, no, you need to stay here. So they get in the car. They drive to the house. Though he did not state it directly, Anthony made several incriminating comments to Debbie on the drive. As soon as they arrive at the scene of his home and he sees everything going on, Anthony immediately makes Debbie turn around and take him back to Tressa's house. Oh, no. I'd tuck and roll. I don't think I could do it. Yeah. But she's scared. So she takes him back. yeah. Then she runs back home and tells her son and another neighbor that Anthony was, like, in the car. I had him. We were coming. He basically, like, admitted to killing the people found in his house. So they walk her over to the scene and are like, here, talk to the police. Like, tell them what you know. Tell them what happened. So she tells the police. The police say, get in the car. We're going to Anthony's sister's house. We're going to Tressa's house. When they get there, Tressa says he just left. But she cooperates and she described what he was wearing and everything and kind of like what direction. I saw it again. He went. (laughs) So the manhunt begins. The FBI, U.S. Marshal Service and Homeland Security all get involved at this point. Profilers believed that he would stay in the area, but knew that he was likely to hide in, like, the abandoned drug houses and stuff, and that he would constantly move. But he was found just two days later on Halloween, on October 31st, 2009, walking down the street in the rain just a mile from his house. (laughs) He didn't get very far. No. Which they, they knew he wouldn't. So they take him in. For questioning, and he told detectives that he and his girlfriend broke up, and that after they broke up, he began hearing a voice named Arnie that told him to do bad things to women. Arnie. 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 hmm Okay. He said, everyone is going to make him out as a monster, but he really is a nice guy that helps people. Which is true. He did, he did help people, but he also was a monster. <laughs> like, Arnie. they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, he said that Lori broke up with him after he did everything for her and even helped her get sober. 
He said he was angry because as soon as Lori got clean, she broke up with him and he felt she took advantage of him. He admitted that he took his anger at Lori out on women who were like her, mothers addicted to crack. Anthony said he experienced blackouts and the women would be gone when he would wake. Yeah. Okay. But not all of them were. Yeah. He claimed he would have, quote, surreal dreams that he hurt women where he thought he strangled them, but he didn't remember using anything but his hands. He also said... Uh, Okay, I can't even with this dude. (laughs) I really just can't. He also said he didn't know how many there were because he didn't remember actually killing anyone. And when questioned how he wouldn't know that there are bodies inside the house on the third floor, he said that Arnie told him not to go into that sitting room on the third floor. So he would never go in there. But, okay, Arnie is in your head and this is your house. I'm thinking you just didn't want to go in there with the smelly bodies. Yeah. He did admit that it had to have been him that killed all these people. So he didn't deny it. He just said, I have this voice and I don't remember. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, I guess there's that. (laughs) Yeah. You know. All right. So, the trial. The trial comes. Only there was a lot of drama around this trial. Ooh, the drama. There's a lot of drama around this trial. Judge Timothy McGinty was originally assigned to the case, but suddenly stepped down just before the pretrial, citing a conflict. Well. Okay. I would like to know As it turned out, Judge McGinty was the one responsible for leaking the psychological evaluation that had been done on Anthony back in 2005 when he was released from prison. That was, of course, before he was assigned to the case. But still. But he should have probably just been like, oh, no, sorry, can't do this. Like, before he was actually, you know. Assigned. Assigned. Yeah. But he waited just a little bit. So, initially, Anthony pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to 85 counts. There's so many charges to keep up with. Can you imagine the discovery that they had? (laughs) Like, there are trial binders for 85 counts. Boxes and boxes of them. Oh, my gosh. What a pain to, like... Yeah. I can't... I bait stamp and inventory. Bait stamping is, like, a fancy inventory system for trials. I cannot fathom because just like it's hard not just reading through like the way that I did, the way that I tried to compact yeah. each of the victims and each of the scenarios. And I can't it's hard to keep straight. Yeah. When writing my notes for this, it was so difficult because I'm like, I know this might come across as like more boring because I'm just like and on this day and on this day and on this day. But, like, how else do you keep it straight? Oh, yeah. There's just some cases that are, once they get so complicated, you when can't. The, yeah, when there's that many victims and yeah. that many things, it's it's difficult. So, no, I, I my brain cannot wrap around yeah. how much, how 
yeah much documentation and just trying to keep everything straight that's in the court like through the court process so the charges against him include of course i'm not going to read off like every single one (laughs) Um, all 85 will be here all day. No, it included multiple counts of attempted murder, felonious assault, rape, attempted rape, kidnapping, aggravated robbery, tampering with evidence, along with the 11 murders and abuse of a corpse to each of the 11 bodies. So, well, they got a lot of them. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Sometimes I just start a sentence, <laughs> as Michael Scott would I say. I do that regularly. That's why I do the editing, because <laughs> I am very difficult to edit. Because I start sentences, and then my brain goes, no, wait, stop. There's a better way to say that. Quite often. So I am quite often piecing my sentences back together. So this case is in Ohio. Ohio. So you know what that means. It means the death penalty was a possibility. Woot, wait, I was going to say woot woot, but I don't really think that that's a woot woot thing. I don't know. For some people, it yeah, is. Some people, it is. Uh, yeah. 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 So, <laughs> the defense requests the insanity plea be put on hold until they can have him reexamined and the judge newly assigned to the case. Judge Shirley Strickland Saffold. Say that fast three times. Shirley Strickland Saffold. Shirley Strickland Saffold. <laughs> I always think so that close. I, I always think that I'm gonna be able to do that thing. If everyone's like, say five times fast, I'm like, I'm built different. <laughs> I'm gonna I do, can it. do it. And then I can't. <laughs> and then no. Yeah. She approved it. She approved the the hold or the yeah. the pause. April 10th. Oh, I'm sorry, not April 10th, April of 2010. Judge Saffold is suddenly removed from the case by Ohio Chief Justice Paul E. Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer. The case was on hold for several weeks as the defense team motioned for her removal due to an appearance of bias against them. Okay. This was after comments were posted online through a username that was created by Judge Saffold's personal email. Okay. They did find that it was actually her 23-year-old daughter who posted the comments. Ah, baby, your mom's a judge. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Yeah. But the chief justice stated in his order, quote, an objective observer who has read the online postings might reasonably question why comments about a defendant and defense counsel appearing before the judge were posted on the judge's personal online account. Yeah, no, I get it. Even if the judge did not make the comments herself. So he's saying... Yeah, it doesn't matter. Even if we publicly show the evidence or state, like, we've done an investigation and know it was her daughter, like, it doesn't matter. No, I agree. It looks bad. and and, And then it gives the defense a leg up and appeal to say he had an unfair trial. Like, the judge was you know no, bias. I, I absolutely agree that that was how to handle that yes so judge dick ambrose was assigned to the case through a random drawing by administrative judge nancy fewerst i'm sorry if i butchered that some places it sounds like it's pronounced first some is fewerst some is fierce 
but fierce is apparently only in South Dakota. Oh, okay. Because of the accent, I guess. Okay. That's what I found online anyway. Fun fact for you. Fun fact for you. So in June of 2011, family members of eight of the victims sign a petition asking for a plea deal of life in prison. So eight out of 11 victims. Yeah. Their families didn't want him to get the death penalty. I mean, look. Yeah. Yeah. Just cut that out. I don't even know what I'm saying. (laughs) I don't. I don't. Uh, the death penalty everybody's it's so polarizing and i am in the middle i don't care my only thing about the death penalty and i think i've said this before on the podcast maybe the only thing about the death penalty is i don't think that it should be up to, to to a jury ever to say whether or not it's on the table whether or not it's an option i don't think you should put that on citizens who did not have said that yeah yeah, i think i have um i'm not sure i'm not sure what episode i said it on but yeah i don't feel comfortable with innocent jury members who are just trying to do their civic duty being forced to make a decision regarding whether or not somebody is eligible for the death penalty yeah that's my only strong opinion yeah that makes sense well their letter stated quote the death penalty for Anthony Soul is not necessary or even desirable in comparison to the grief we families will continue to suffer under the realities and uncertainties of the criminal justice system. Yeah. They just felt like it doesn't matter. That doesn't bring back our daughters, yeah. sisters, mothers. What good does that do? What does do? it do? And, and honestly, I get it. Yeah. That's like I said at the beginning or towards the beginning of the episode, like, or maybe that was part one. Sorry. You don't sometimes leaving them in life life in prison is worse than yeah. giving like I hate to say it, but death penalty, they go into death row and they're pretty secluded. Yeah. From what I know. And oh, then, yeah. And then then they die. And yeah. then it's very difficult because I've even have cases I, we're going to cover a case. Coming up, actually, I had to think. I needed a second to think yeah. about that. Um, where the families of the victims are Christian, but they're for the death penalty. And I think that they don't come out and say it. But if I, like, I am, I'm speculating that it kind of makes me think that they're for the death penalty because they automatically assume that that means you're going to hell when you die. So you're oh. going to get yours. You're going to get payment and that's why they want the death penalty but like you're not god you don't actually know that like we don't know that yeah that's how i feel about it anyway all right so moving on during the trial the defense called dr george woods as their mental health expert he testified that anthony suffered from a obsessive compulsive disorder post-traumatic stress disorder a cognitive disorder including irritability and disassociation. Under cross-examination, however, he said that his diagnosis of Anthony does not have a direct relationship with his crimes, and he is only speaking to his mental health. Okay. So. That is interesting. Yes. I don't think I've ever heard a, uh, a psychologist make that, determ- that, that 
specification before. It what it was interesting because I th- I believe that that's in my sources that I have the actual clip from the trial of him yeah. on, on YouTube of him talking and it is quite you're kind of like whoa like you're supposed to be defending but really yeah. like it it came across as yeah there is no defense here <laughs> like yeah. this this is what he has but really like there's people with these things that don't do this stuff yeah. so. And which that's always true. Yeah. So Anthony Soul was convicted of 81 out of 85 counts and sentenced to death. He attempted to appeal based on 18 propositions of law and three supplemental propositions of law, including ones about the suppression hearings where they did not allow cameras for the jury selection, as well as when they reviewed the interrogation tapes. Now, here's what's funny about that. The prosecution, like the appellate, yeah, through the appellate process, the prosecution's rebuttal to that was that the defense team was actually the ones that asked for the public to be excluded. And the appellate defense team's rebuttal to that was that if that was the case, then the defense team had failed in their duty to protect Anthony's rights. Okay. The court concluded that the trial court's failure to follow proper procedure in making the proceedings non-public did not mandate a new hearing or trial because, obviously, it would not change the verdict. So, aftermath is that families of six of the deceased victims, as well as two of the survivors, went on to file civil lawsuits against the detectives responsible for the cases. Uh, yeah. And apparently it was one lead detective on many things. Oh, wow. Like, on more than one thing. Well, yeah, they definitely dropped the ball on a lot of these. So, the trial court on these lawsuits at first dismissed the cases, citing detectives have immunity. However... The appellate court sent the cases back to trial, citing anyone can reasonably see how detectives went wrong. Because it turned out that the lead detective eventually admitted that she didn't think that Gladys Wade, the one who was walking down the street and then got drugged into the house, she didn't think that Gladys Wade was credible. She neglected to fully look over the officer's reports before speaking to the prosecutor, nor did she inform the prosecution that Anthony had served a 15-year sentence for rape. Oh, Lord. Yeah. So, the city of Cleveland ultimately paid over $1.3 million in settlements for the shoddy detective work that allowed Anthony to continue. Yeah, because... reign of terror. They could have stopped him... Several times and yes. did not. Now, where is Anthony Soul? Where is Anthony Soul? He dead. He did. But he in the ground. But he not dead from death penalty. We don't know where he is after death. He, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, we don't, technically. But no, he would never actually see the death penalty because he died in February of 2021 from an undisclosed terminal illness. Oh, that's actually pretty recently. Yep. 
some families and people got their monies from the city. That's, I mean, hey. should never happen in the first place, no. but at least they were able to get some kind of yeah validation for the lack of, you know. That, yeah. But I'm just aggravated that it got to that point in the beginning where, yes. like, they knocked on his door and smelled bodies and did not go inside. Yeah. Somebody called the police and said, I need to report a crime. And they said, well, you have to come in person. I'm injured. No, you got to come in actually, person. That actually, the, the two things that bothered me the most of police action or inaction was... Those two things was Vanessa Gay being told she has to come in person. Yeah. Okay, pick pick her up. Yeah. Go pick her up. Go ask her where is she. Where are you? Yeah, we're gonna come help you. That bothers because me a lot. That is isn't that your thing? Like, isn't you are to protect and serve? So protect and serve. This woman is calling you. Clearly had to be in pain, suffering. Yeah. Go pick her up and take her to the hospital. And she turns out to be a crackhead who d- isn't credible and nothing happened to her, yeah. whatever, whatever, whatever. But like, she's a human being. Just go pick yeah. her up and take her to the hospital, have her looked at and yeah. verify if something happened to her and telling, like, blowing families off like that. Yeah. You know, oh well, she'll come out. She'll come back when the drugs. Especially run out. if you say anything like that. Yeah, like, that's. I understand. Like, if you're working out in the field and you experience this over and over and over again, your heart's gonna get hardened from watching people with addiction. You know, make mistakes and do these things yeah. and harm people, and some of them are violent, and some, you know, whatever. I get that, but like, their families don't deserve that. Yeah, my thing is these family members are having the worst day of their lives because somebody that they care about who's always struggling yes. is still having, the, you know, you should maintain professionalism and not say yes. the things that you say to your coworkers when they leave. Right. You should just say, well, you can, you know, I don't know. We'll do what we can. If, I do that with clients, you, like, you know. Yeah, if you can't, if what you can do isn't as much as they expect like okay that happens in any job yeah in the legal field clients want you to give them the world and you're like i can only give you what the judge says i can like in estate planning clients do their estate plan and then they want you to oh can you have the bank transfer my accounts and talk to them and no sir ma'am i cannot because i don't have permission to access your accounts and that is a good thing it protects your accounts but they get kind of some of them get upset about that that's one thing there's a difference between oh i wasn't able to do what you expected me to do because it wasn't within the laws or the boundaries or whatever versus yeah i'm not really going to take this seriously because you don't seem credible clearly your kid isn't credible because they're a crackhead like that's just yep i don't know it just seems heartless yeah i agree so anyway that case is, I don't know, it just gets to me, man. Yeah. It's a rough one. I know. You know me, though. You can't I love pick them. good ones. I love them social justice cases. Uh, you do, man. <laughs> let's, let's point out all the flaws in the system. <laughs> well, 
This one had quite a few. <laughs> yes. But I also wanted to point out, even in the true crime community, honestly. Oh, I didn't hear about it. I kind of wanted to point it out because I hate to say it, but even in the true crime community, why is this not? A, why are cases like this not a bigger deal? Is it yeah. because it wasn't? I, I'm not. I don't want to stir the pot necessarily, but is it because? Well, the victims don't really matter as much. Like, so we're not going to talk about that because it's not. You know, it's kind of like. And honestly, that's kind of how things went with everybody's on the Dahmer kick. Yeah. A lot of his victims, like he he went and met people, met men, or even boys in some cases, that were like runaways, that were estranged from their families, that were like people that... The term is less dead. Yes, that are going to be less dead, that aren't going to be looked for. Or even if their families are trying to look for them, police aren't are going to be like, yeah. well, they ran away. They went missing. They yeah. did this, you know. So that's, it's difficult. Yeah. But the thing that made his case, because like, I remember I was alive when, <laughs> yeah, I remember the thing that made his case was the whole cannibalism thing. Like that was oh, the yeah. focus. That oh, was the focus. Because it it, it's because it's. The I mean, it's worst a big deal. Part. Yeah, it's terrible. But like, that's what made that case stand out. If well, that- and also like the necrophilia. Yes, and the general. I'm gonna say yeah. I'm gonna say that like even though I I get what you're saying that Dahmer was talked about more because even in Ohio he was white. And so, well, more so the victims. Like I'm just yeah. thinking from the victims' perspective. Like I don't necessarily like I could even see, especially since a good percentage of true crime fans and people who talk true crime are white. Yeah, I mean, let's be real. Not wanting to speak on serial killers that are of different races, ethnicities, whatever. I get being a little touchy about that, but I just mean like from the victim's perspective, like, is it that we don't talk about certain cases because the victims didn't matter as much or there's not as much interest in, I don't know. I don't know. I just think Dahmer may have been a bad example. Yeah, I think that's not a good example because he his thing is so crazy. Yeah, the it's it's the it's the mutilation of the corpse after and then the cannibalism and the necrophilia like that's it's a complete it's a whole different level. Yeah, it is. Um, so it's just because I had him on the brain because it's so popular right now, and yeah, he. But that's how he got away with that it for in so Ohio, long but too, the, and it's the same example. Yeah. So I don't know. That's why. That's kind of why I picked this case because I was like, "Well, look at that. This isn't really talked about." Yeah. And they're not less dead. They're just as dead. I agree. There are people missing them. So there you go. Yep. <laughs> what to say (laughs) i'm sorry i'm sorry everyone (laughs) i'm gonna go cry cry. you did a good job covering it very detailed all questions answered yeah i tried i just did a lot i I actually cut out a lot of details too yeah it's just a lot it's a a heavy case so it is all right all righty well we'll see you next week we'll see you thursday because it's part two so you're listening to this on a monday or a day after that, but it uploaded on a Monday. Yes. And so our next upload will be on Thursday. Yep. And Savannah will have a gory case for you. 
something good probably <laughs> and uh, yeah <laughs> probably probably all right thanks for listening yeah bye bye thanks for listening guys find us on instagram and tiktok at burden of proof pod and email us at burden of proof pod at gmail.com <laughs>